Amen. Thank you, Brother Don. I, I'm so thankful for prayer, aren't you? I'm, I'm grateful that God invites us to come boldly into his presence and to talk about, uh, talk with him about people we care about. I'm, I think we ought to take full advantage, uh, take full advantage of that invitation. Judges chapter 3, would you find that passage of scripture? We're talking about a surveying, uh, we're talking about surveying the book of Judges, not a verse-by-verse study, but kind of a flyover, a, a bird's-eye view of the book and various, uh, various things that are recorded in it. Tonight, I've entitled our study, No Substitute for Victory. And I stole that from General Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur said uh, at the end of World War II, there is no substitute for victory. That, if, if you've read anything about him or by him, um, that is classic Douglas MacArthur. He's right to the point, and uh, there is no substitute for victory, and that's where he set his that's where he set his sights. One of the greatest applications that you and I can walk away from the book of Judges with is the parallel in Judges in the Old Testament with the spiritual battles that you and I face in the, as Christians as the New Testament church. There are a lot of parallels in the fights that go on, the enemies that are faced, the victories that are won. Um, someone said when God's rules of warfare were executed properly, Israel won. When those rules were neglected, Israel was defeated. You can take that right over to the New Testament because you and I are in a spiritual battle. We will be till we see Jesus. And, and that same principle holds true. If God's rules of spiritual warfare are executed properly, you'll be victorious. If his rules of warfare are neglected, you and I will be defeated. It's the same way. I like reading various authors. One of my favorites uh, is Warren Wearsby. I like Dr. Wearsby. He is a... uh, He is what's called a devotional commentator. So when he makes commentaries of books, you can use them as you would a devotional book. Um, The other kind of commentary is called technical. You can't use those for devotional. You'll fall asleep. Guaranteed, you'll fall asleep. They're great for word studies, but they tend to be be not as devotional uh, devotional or applicable. But Brother Wearsby was a a tremendous uh, master teacher. I think I'd call him a master teacher. He said about uh, this idea of war, uh, he said, when God goes to war, he usually chooses the most unlikely soldiers, hands them the most unusual weapons, and accomplishes through them the most unpredictable results. Um, Just think about Samson with the jawbone of an ass and the thousands that he killed with with that weapon. That's a classic statement right there. You and I are in a spiritual battle and we will we will be in this fight until Jesus takes us out of this world. And so regardless of how old you are uh, physically or how old you are in Christ, be prepared for battle. If I'm not mistaken, it's it's one of the most if not the most referred to analogy to picture the Christian in the New Testament. More so than an athlete is, is the, or a farmer, it's the picture of a soldier. Paul uses that picture regularly. Spiritual battle. So no substitute for victory. Our goal ought to be victory. The Bible says a lot about this. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
And then following that, he goes right into the spiritual armor of the Christian. Remember that? Take up the helmet and the shield and the breastplate and the belt and all of the parts that we need to be a successful Christian soldier. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You've been recruited into the army of God. You've been chosen to be a soldier. And so the Bible says, as a soldier, you're going to have to endure hardness. I'd like us to take those ideas of spiritual battle and come to Judges chapter 3 tonight. We're going to make our way through this chapter, uh, but to, to get into it, let's read the first six verses. Judges 3, verse number 1 says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war at the least, such as before knew nothing thereof. Namely, here are those, here are those nations left in, in Canaan. Namely, five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon unto entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods." Well, you already know, you know they're in trouble now. You read verse 6, right? I'd like you to note in verse number 2, especially God is going to use these Canaanite tribes that Israel left in the land. Disobediently, they left these tribes in the land. But God takes their disobedience and he turns around and look what verse number 2 says. I'm going to use those tribes to teach you war. I'm going to use those tribes to teach you war. Do you remember what we talked about last week? That all of those that served under Joshua. Joshua died, and the Bible said the priests that were with Joshua died, and that whole generation passed away. That whole generation was like our World War II generation. They knew the big war. Now, all those Israelites that knew how to war, and they understood strategy, and they understood military discipline, and they understood the need for courage in the battlefield... That whole generation passed away. So God says, I'm going to teach this new generation how to war with the tribes that they disobediently left in the land. I'm going to use those tribes to teach them to war. Twice the Bible uses that in verse 1, and I think again in verse number 4, the Bible uses that word prove. Did you see that? It's the same, it's the same Hebrew word both times to prove. That particular word means to exercise or to train. They'd had this long period of rest after Joshua died where there wasn't, uh, uh, there wasn't the need for battle. And during that time of rest, this generation grew up with no battle experience. But you know, if they want to keep this in the future, you, you remember the stories that come along in 1 Samuel with King Saul and then, of course, David in 2 Samuel. 
if they're going to keep their land, they're going to have to know how to fight. In fact, they're going to take the land that they have now, and under David, they're going to expand it to the closest it has ever been to the land that God promised Abraham. But to do that, they had to know how to fight. They would need that knowledge because trouble was coming to them. You know why trouble was coming to them? Because of verse 6. That's why. Because verse 6 is nothing but a confession of the violation of the commandment of God. God said, do not give them your daughters to marry. Do not take their daughters to marry and don't worship their gods. He was that specific. Hold your hand right here in Deuteronomy or or in Judges chapter 3 and go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Note, remember what verse 6 says. Verse 6 in Judges 3 says, they took their daughters to be their wives. They gave their daughters to their sons. They served their gods. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, look what it says in verse 1. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and destroy thee suddenly. Mark those words in that verse. Don't give your daughters to them. Don't take their daughters to your sons. Don't serve their gods. Verse 5, but thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of uh, bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him, to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, which I command thee this day to do them. Well, they didn't. But how sobering are those words in there? If, if, you're, if you love me and you're obedient to me and you follow my commands, he said, I'll be faithful to a thousand generations. That's not the Lord putting an end to it. That's him saying, my faithfulness goes on forever. But if you disobey me, he uses the word hate. He said, if you hate me, I'll repay you to your face. 
That phrase, to your face, what he's saying is this. You will have no problem knowing that you're at odds with me. You know how we know that comes to pass? We'll see it in Judges chapter 3 tonight, but you'll see it again and again and again in the book. Because every time they get sold into bondage, nobody sits around and asks themselves, now how do you think we got here? How do you think we got under the Midianites or the Philistines again? Every one of them know God is chastening us to our face. Just like he said he would. There's not going to be a doubt. If I come after you, you're going to know it's me. And that's exactly what the book of Judges proves. Well, you can see from Deuteronomy 7, you can see the, the clear violation of the specific commands of God. Does it get any more clear than that? When, when God tells them through Moses in Deuteronomy, when he says, don't marry their daughters and don't give your daughters to their sons. You, it's not hard to understand that. When he says, if you do this, you're going to get pulled away. Don't serve their gods. It's not hard to understand that. He tells them to break down their altars and cut down their images, burn them in the fire. And yet, what do we read back in Judges 3.6? They took their daughters to be their wives. They gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Strike one, strike two, and strike three. Just clear violations of that. Well, When we come to Judges chapter 3, it's been kind of broad in the first two chapters as to what's going to happen. Now the rubber kind of hits the road, and we begin to discuss certain uh, specific judges. The Bible says that that God would use these Canaanite tribes that were left in the land of Israel. God was going to use them to teach Israel to war. And he starts with this first judge by the name of Othniel. So we're going to look tonight at three men that were instructors or leaders for Israel when it comes to this idea of learning war. God gives gives, uh, three of these guys here, and let's look at them. Let's start with Othniel. And keep in mind, we're talking about victory, spiritual victory. How do we get spiritual victory? Well, these men each bring something different to the table to show us what we're going to need to have spiritual victory. They're looking for military victory. So what's one thing we need? Othniel is going to demonstrate for us, first of all, the importance of power. The importance of power. We left off reading at verse number 6. So back in Judges 3, let's pick up at verse 7. And the children of the of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord God and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Can I just stop right there? Is that not exactly what the words were back in Deuteronomy chapter 7? He said, don't kindle the anger, the hot anger of the Lord against you. God is only doing what he said he was going to do here. So it says there in verse number 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Shushan Rish Athaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Shushan Rish Athaim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. 
And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, upon Othniel, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Shushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Shushan Rishathaim. Boy, the Lord just loves that name, doesn't he? He just keeps putting it in there. And verse 11 says, And the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, king of Kenaz, the son of Kenaz, died. Here's our first judge, Othniel. Back up in verse number 3, you read the phrase, the lords of the Philistines. Down in verse number 25, and we'll get to that story shortly, you're going to read about a man there named Eglon, and he is called the lord of that group of people, the small l, lord. So you have the lords of the Philistines, you have the lord fallen down dead in verse number 25, this lord named, this king named Eglon. But did you know that in these 31 verses in this chapter, the Lord Jehovah is mentioned 15 times and never once in failure? Not once. My point is that God's in charge even through all of this mess that's demonstrated in the book of Judges. God's still in charge here, not just through Judges or or Joshua or those Old Testament books. He's in charge of all of world and human history. He's still reigning and he's doing all of this. Even though uh, somebody said that Israel had developed a good neighbor policy with their enemies. That's unfortunate because God told them to get them out of the land. But they started making treaties and making covenants which God forbade with them. They should have driven them out the land. They didn't. And eventually those same people that they made these covenants and treaties with and agreements, those same people are going to come back and they're going to defeat Israel, not from outside of their borders, but from inside the land that belonged to Israel. That's important because it, 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 makes, a, it makes a good spiritual parallel for you and I in the battle against our, dev, our, our enemy, the devil. And here it is. Sometimes Satan comes as a lion to devour, but often he comes as a serpent to deceive. Sometimes he comes as a lion to devour. You don't, you, you don't usually get surprised by a lion. Those male lions over there, four and five hundred pounds, and they may come flying out of the brush, but you see them when they come flying. They're big. But then sometimes Satan is like that serpent that you don't see right away. And he comes to deceive. God had made it clear where Israel was to draw these lines, and they they didn't. Those lines are drawn there in Deuteronomy 7 where we read. They didn't draw those lines, and they fell into the trap. A trap was set for them. And they fell into that trap, and they married into these pagan tribes, and they started serving. The Bible says here they started serving Balaam. I think I mentioned to you last week, whenever you see that word Balaam, the I-M at the end refers to the plural of the gods, Baal. They had different types of gods. Baal Peor, Baal Zebub. Balaam is that whole umbrella word that covers all of the Baal idols. So it's telling us in this chapter that Israel's worshiping more than one false god, more than one type of idol. They married into it. I put that little blurb on your worksheet, and it looks like it's just kind of out there in the middle of it. Curiosity is often the first step toward conformity. I think Israel had been 
they had been a long time hearing that, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and him shalt thou serve. They've heard that for a long time. One Lord, one God, Jehovah is his name. Then they come into this, they come into this land where everybody has more than one God. Well, they got five or six over there. That family's got eight or nine. That family's got four or five. And they looked at that with a measure of curiosity. And the next thing you know, they're conforming to it because it says Israel was worshiping those same gods. I'll I'll pause right here, and this is kind of a practical application. There is a huge presence of homosexuality and lesbianism in our middle and high schools right now. And there has been for a number of years in the public schools. Um, there is, there, there's, a, there's an element in that sin of curiosity. I don't think that all of these kids are given over to it. But they're curious because it's something that, that they don't see everywhere. And they've got, this, they've, got this, they've got this curiosity that's built up. So there's a level of experimentation that's going to take place. But the longer they experiment with it, the more they'll be conformed to it. I'm saying all that to say, moms and dads, you ought to be very careful as to what you allow your children to watch, to read, to participate in. Do not let that curiosity arouse. It will end up destroying your sons and daughters. It'll happen. Curiosity is often the first step to conformity. God says, don't have anything to do with it. Don't have anything to do with those idol worshipers. They will draw you away from me. And Israel's looking at those idols and they're all curious. And What in the world is going on over there? And instead of doing what God said, to tear them down, break them up, and burn them in the fire, they were curious and they were tolerant and then they were conformed. And before you know it, later on in the book of Judges, the Israelites are going to be sacrificing their children in a fire to the god Molech. God's chosen people are going to roll their little babies down into an oven and think they're worshiping a God. Curiosity is often the first step to conformity. Well, I just want my kids to be educated. I want them to be well-rounded. Not in the world you don't. Let them be ignorant of the world. How familiar are they with the things of God? I love that uh, we do. We've shown that series before. We may be uh, we may be due for another one where we showed um, that series uh, on, on apologetics and how its names left me just now. What's that little Australian guy's name? Ray Comfort. What's that series we did with him? Do you remember? Somebody help me. What? Joe just won the grand prize. Way of the Master. He shows that at the beginning of the. He shows this at the beginning of the series when he's talking about. The, the use of the Ten Commandments just to show people their sinfulness. And he asked people to name the Ten Commandments, and they can't hardly get past four. And then he'll ask the same people, he said, well, name ten brands of beers. And he has to cut them off because they just start naming them like this. 
Your children don't need to be educated in the things of the world. They need to be educated in the things of God. That will prevent them from being conformed to the world. Israel's problem here was that they were tolerant. They end up in a mess, so God sends, God sends Othniel to them because they have ended up in a terrible mess, the scripture says. When Israel obeyed God's word, her conduct and God's blessing on them were a testimony to the unbelieving neighbors. When Israel obeyed God's word, her conduct and God's blessing were a, were a testimony to their unbelieving neighbors, which is exactly what God wanted them to be. He wanted them to be a light there. And the same is true with your obedience and my obedience. God blesses that, and our neighbors can see a good testimony for Jesus Christ. They will glorify our Father, which is in heaven, the Gospel of Matthew says. Unfortunately, most of the time, Israel and later Judah were disobedient, so God had to chasten them, and he used these tribes to do it. Instead of the God of Israel affecting the lost people around them, the gods of the lost people were affecting Israel. Is that not true of Christianity today? We're supposed to be the light impacting the darkness, and yet so many times we have churches that are wrapped up in worldliness. We have to be careful about that. As Christians, as individual Christians, also collectively as as churches. And so these reasons are why God's Anger is so great in verse number 8. It says that the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So I've I've constructed this, this outline for each of these three guys. I've constructed it kind of the same. First, in relating to this first part, let's look at Israel's enemy. Their enemy is Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. Here's this king whose name literally means doubly wicked Shushan. Doubly wicked. His kingdom is described as Mesopotamia. That's that region that is between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Today it's modern day Syria and Iraq. Well, northeastern Syria and a lot of northern Iraq. If it helps you with your Bible geography... In Judges chapter 10, that region is going to start being called Syria. So that's where they're coming from. Now, Othniel, who did it say Othniel's uncle was? Did you catch that? Caleb, right? We know that Caleb and his family settled all the way down in Hebron. If you look in your Bible maps at the back of your Bible, you'll see that Hebron is actually... Uh, south of Jerusalem. It's way down south in Israel, which means that this king came from Mesopotamia way up north, and he has invaded two-thirds of the nation of Israel. He's taken over. He's worked his way all the way to the south, but when he gets to the south where Othniel lives, he's brought to a stop. So the enemy is this Shushan Rishathaim. He's come from Mesopotamia or Syria. He's a wicked man, and he has worked his way through two-thirds of the nation of Israel. That's their enemy. Their deliverer is Othniel. That's the second thing, their deliverer. He's Caleb's nephew. Now, what's interesting is this. Nowhere in Scripture tells us the details of this battle that's described in this chapter. Or not even described. It's just mentioned. All it says, 
uh, all it says in verse number 9 is that the children of Israel cried to the Lord. God raised up Othniel. In verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. He judged Israel, went out to war, and the Lord delivered Shushan Rishathaim into the, uh, the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. There's no other reference in the entire Bible to that battle. That's all you get right there. Why is that? Because those details aren't important. What is important? Look at the first phrase and the last phrase of verse 10. This is what God wants you to know about Othniel. It wasn't the details of the battle. It's not how many died. It's not how much land they took back. Here's what he wanted you to know. That the Holy Spirit came upon Othniel. And through the Holy Spirit, he was given victory over this pagan king. The Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit was different than you and I experience today. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on a person for a specific task and then would withdraw. We see that in the life of Gideon. We see it in Samson. We see it in in David. We see it in Saul. And here we see it in this man, Othniel. What God wants you and I to know about this is when it comes to spiritual victory, you don't have the power and I don't have the power It's the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon this judge that allowed him to gain the victory. And your victory over temptation and sin and my victory over temptation and sin is directly related to my relationship and my fellowship and my submission to the Holy Spirit. That's the source of power. That's why he overcame this king and his army. Remember, they've never had battle experience before. They're just getting it. This generation is not battle-hardened, but it says in verse number 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. And uh, this is what you see, the Lord delivering this king into his hand. It's the Spirit. Your key to power and my key to power is the Holy Spirit. We are to choose to allow this indwelling Holy Spirit to fill us and to direct our steps Every day. Now the ministry of the Holy Spirit is different. When you got saved, he permanently indwelt you. He doesn't come and go from the believer. Now he's a permanent resident. And our responsibility is to submit to him every day. Here's the lesson to learn from him. Then we'll go on to the next guy. Here's the lesson. Never underestimate what one person can do who is filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient to God's will. Don't underestimate that guy. Don't underestimate that shepherd with a sling versus this giant with a full set of armor. Don't underestimate that shepherd. Don't underestimate the one man who God finds righteous among the whole world and God extends grace to this one man. Don't underestimate his ability to build an ark out in the middle of nowhere. When the Holy Spirit is is sought after, and, he, and, and we are filled with the Spirit, and we're obeying God's will, God can greatly use that. God used him here. There's a second story here, not just Othniel teaching us about the importance of power, and that power is in the Holy Spirit. There's a second guy. His name is Ehud. He's going to teach us the importance of strategy. This is the bulk of this chapter. We do not have time to read it, but to tickle your interest... My Bible history professor, Bill Bartlett, who is now with the Lord, called this passage of, he called this passage of scripture, when lefty killed fatty. 
You pretty much got the whole story right there. When Lefty killed Fatty, there was a king that came into there was a king that came into the land. Let, well, let's just read the first part of it. We saw, didn't we, that in verse number eleven, that good that good judge, this first judge Othniel, he died. And remember the cycle, the judge would die, and after a period of time, Israel would go back to sin. Exactly what happened, verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. The city of palm trees is Jericho. Jericho, it's down by the Dead Sea. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. We talked about this cycle that they got into last week. Sin, captivity, confession, deliverance. and goes right back into it. And here's the first cycle that we find in this book. It was probably the fault of parents and priests that this generation failed to teach their children uh, God's law and God's ways, and so they just would go back to their paganism all the time. When we fail to communicate God's word to the next generation, there will always be a turning away from righteousness. Case in point, the United States of America. So let's follow that same, let's follow that same outline, can we? Their enemy... I just put this down. Their enemy is Eglon and company, E-G-L-O-N and company. He goes and gets some friends. He's king of the Moabites. You saw that. And then there's the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Now, here's an interesting, here's an interesting note. All three of those tribes are distant relatives to the nation of Israel. All three of them. The Moabites and the Ammonites are the descendants from Lot's sons. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. So these distant cousins are coming in to attack Israel. Here's a truth, and it might save you from being blindsided sometime. Sometimes an attack comes from those whom you least expect. This was family on family here. These are cousins on cousins. I don't think they were expecting to be attacked and oppressed and held in captivity, the Bible says, for 18 years by their family, their distant family members, but they, but they were. Eglon ruled over Israel, the Bible says, for 18 years. That's this guy. We don't know much about him yet, but we're about to know. Then their deliverer, their deliverer. It says in verse number 15, But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment, uh, uh, under his raiment upon his right thigh. A cubit, by the way, for our purposes, it's figured to be somewhere around 16 to 18 inches long. So you're not looking at a pocket knife. You're looking at a small battle sword, all right? He's made this dagger, it's, and that's important. 
He made a dagger, it says in verse number 16. He brought the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. And the Bible is very plain here. Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, when Ehud made an end to offering this present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence, and all that stood by him went out from him. So after he'd made, he'd made this tribute, he gave him some amount of money or some type of gift, and then they left, but Ehud comes back, Lefty comes back by himself, and he says to the king, King, I have a secret that is just for you. Now the guy had just paid him a tribute, just paid some kind of special tax or made some kind of gift, and so the king sends everybody out. Lefty has an 18-inch dagger strapped to his right thigh. King, I want to tell you a secret. So he sends him out. And verse 20, Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, (coughs) talking about Eglon. And And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. I mean, even Eglon, this pagan king, you got a message from God for me? And he stands up to get it. And Ehud put forth his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the haft, the Bible says, also went in after the blade. The fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of the belly, and the dirt came out. Why did he make such a long? Why did he make such a long blade? Because he had, he was dealing with a fat man. That that dagger had to go somewhere. Remember, he is teaching us the importance of strategy. This deliverer. Look at look at the the details that the Holy Spirit shares with us about this assassination plot. This isn't a haphazard victory that's about to come about. Somebody's put some time and thought and effort into this victory. Look at it. There's a specially designed dagger. Daggers weren't 18 inches long. But this one had to be because of the target. He used a ruse for gaining access to the king. Tribute money. He made the king think he... King think he was on his side. The Bible doesn't indicate that this was a regular tax. This was a special gift to the king. So the king's not going to suspect him as being an enemy. He's got this whole ruse figured out. There's a request for a private audience. I have a secret for you from God. And then if you read verses 23 and 26, you'll see that he had already planned his escape once he carried out this assassination. My point in all of this was that this man had a strategy to bring about this victory. There was a plan for this. Where Othniel shows us the importance of power and having the Holy Spirit in us, Ehud shows us the importance of strategy. How do we know the plan to have a spiritual victory? God's gave us our plan. We've got the plan for it. Here's how you do it. God gives us his word and says, here's how, you, here's how you become victorious in the Christian life. I want you to take on the whole armor of God that you can withstand the wiles of the devil. 
Daniel, before he ever got to Babylon, had predetermined. The Bible says in Daniel 1.8 that Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the wine which he drank nor with the meat that he ate. Daniel predetermined how he was going to behave in Babylon before he got to Babylon. You're not going to have spiritual victory, Christian, because of haphazard lifestyle living. You're not going to wing it in this sinful world that is against you and against your Savior. You're not going to wing it and come out spiritually victorious. I'm not going to wing it. I need to take God's strategy for spiritual victory and follow it. That's exactly what Ehud did. Here's the lesson to learn from Ehud, lefty. Here's the lesson. If you will be successful in fulfilling God's plan for your life, it will be because you planned ahead to do so. You planned ahead. It's not haphazard. No wonder Paul's telling Timothy all the time, study to show thyself approved. Remember the things that your grandmother and your mother taught you. Do not forsake, it says back in Proverbs, the commandments of their father, the law of your mother. Don't forsake these things. Follow the strategy. So there's Othniel. He teaches us the importance of power when it comes to spiritual victory. Then there's this man Ehud. He teaches us the importance of strategy and following God's plan. The last one we'll talk about, he's the least known of the group. He, gets, uh, he doesn't get much press here at all. And it's Shamgar, and he's going to show us the importance of courage. He only gets one verse here, and that's verse number 31. If the, the verses that we skipped, verses 33 or 23 rather, down to verse 30, um, the Bible just tells us about Ehud's escape. And it was a, it was a master escape. This guy was a thinker. And you follow through those verses, and it's, it's wonderful. They, they slew, the Bible, says, um, the Bible says in verse number 29, they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men. Talking about Israel. They slew 10,000 Moabites, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And now look, and the land had rest for fourscore or 80 years. That was a big victory. 80 years. Verse 31, and after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. And that's all you read about him. He's going to be mentioned one more time in Judges chapter 5, and Judges 5, where Deborah is singing her song. But that's all you know about Shamgar right here. So the enemies listed here in verse number 31, who is the enemy? The enemy uh, is the Philistines. The Philistines. And we know some things about them. In fact, if you study world history in that part of, uh, in that part of the world, even world history talks about the Philistines. The Bible tells us a lot about them, but so does, so does secular world history. Same thing. We know they're fierce warriors. They used modern weaponry for the day. They were great uh, seamen. They, they lived on the, on the border of the Mediterranean Sea, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They had giants in their ancestry, First Kings, or First, uh, First Samuel chapter 17. And we also know they had a well-organized government. 
These are the people that we read all the time, the five lords of the city. You know those five cities are still in existence today? They're still populated cities today. This was a well-organized thing. Here's what's not known about this oppression. We don't know when this oppression by the Philistines started, but it was probably around the same time as the events recorded in Judges chapter 4 and 5 because Shamgar is mentioned in Deborah's song, as I said a moment ago. And it was sometime after this 80 years passed. But we don't know much about that. But their enemy was the Philistines. Their deliverer was Shamgar, this guy named Shamgar. We almost know nothing about him. He gets one verse in the Bible, almost no press compared to the rest of the other judges. We don't know who his father was. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know what tribe he is from. Othniel, we know his dad and his uncle. And we know generally where Othniel lives. But Shamgar, we don't get hardly anything about him. May I, may I offer you something that's a good, it's a good Bible study habit? Don't try to learn what God does not say. You know, there's a lot of authors out there that are trying to teach you what God has not said. Don't try to learn what God didn't say. This is all we have about Shamgar. Shamgar came after Ehud. He's the son of Anath. He slew of the Philistines 600. Oh, so we do know his dad. There it is. He slew 600 men. He slew those 600 men with the same weapon, and he delivered Israel. No location, no tribe. So what does God tell us about him? God talks about this ox goad that he has. The ox goad is about an eight-foot-long pole. It has a sharp metal point on one end, and sometimes the users of that ox goad would put a spade on the other end for dirt work, to knock dirt off of a plow, to dig something up. But what it's mostly known for is that sharp metal point because if a 1,200-pound ox didn't want to go somewhere, you've got to convince him he wants to move. And so they would use this ox goad to do that. And the Bible says that he took this ox goad. It's not a spear. It's not a sword. The the Bible tells us in chapter 5 and verse 8 that there's no spears or shields found among the Israelites. The enemies had taken all their weapons. So all he has left as a rancher is this ox goad. And the Bible says that he, Shamgar, personally killed 600 Philistines with this thing. Now, I don't know, nor do you, if this was in one battle or not. It may have been, because there's other records in the Bible where a guy stood in the middle of a bean field, one of David's mighty men, he killed 800 there. Samson killed how many with the jawbone? So this might have been one battle. It also could be a cumulative account of how many he killed while he was battling the Philistines. But the point is that he used this ox goad to do it. And so let me phrase it like this. He offered to God what he had. What did he have? He had that tool. He had an ox goad. He courageously did what God gave him to do. And the Bible says he, God used him in a mighty way. It says this, he also delivered Israel. 
He didn't get the coverage that many of the other guys got. We've got a little more detail with Othniel. We got a lot more detail with Ehud. But we don't get hardly anything with Shamgar. And yet the Bible says the result is still the same. He also delivered Israel. So what's the lesson to learn from Shamgar? This man who's teaching us, he is, he is the last one to teach us the importance of courage. What's, what's the lesson from him? The lesson is this. Your victories in life are not dependent on what you can do with what you have, but what God can do with what he's given you. It's not about your ability or your resources. It's about what God can do with what he's given you. God made this guy a rancher. He had an ox goat. So he gave that to God, and God did great things through him. And church, whatever it is that you have, if you would surrender that to God, God... God can do some pretty mighty things through it. Your name may, may not be up in lights like Gideon or Samson or Ehud. You use a title like when Lefty killed Fatty, use that on a Sunday morning sometimes, you're going to have everybody's attention in that auditorium for at least four or five minutes. It may die off, but there's really no flashy title we can give to Shamgar. We just know so little about this guy. But we do know that with a tool that should not have been used as a weapon, God was able to bring about a great victory and he delivered Israel through him. So the lesson is about what God can do with what he's given you. These three men give us three important keys when it comes to spiritual victory. Power, that's from the Holy Spirit. Strategy, that's from the word of God. And courage, that comes from surrender. Shamgar on his own wasn't going to do this. God gave him the ability to do it. So what is the tool that you have? What is the tool that God has given you in your life? And how are you using it for him? That's one thing you take away from Shamgar. The closing thought I have for you is this tonight. We're talking about three guys fairly obscure men when it comes to the whole scope of the Bible. Most people, if if before tonight, if I would have said Ehud, be honest, would you have known what book to turn to? Or Shamgar? Now, if I say Paul, well, you're on it. Moses, David, Daniel, we can get there in, in a few seconds. We can be to their stories. But these three guys are fairly obscure. Even in the book of Judges, they're fairly obscure. We've had, three, we've had three life stories told in 31 verses. Samson got four or five chapters. Gideon got four or five chapters. The closing thought then is this. The world is looking for better methods. God is looking for better people. God is looking for men and women of godly power who will invoke his wise strategy and they will demonstrate unwavering courage. God's looking for people. He's not looking for methods. He's not looking for programs. In fact, the scripture, the scripture makes a, a wonderful statement in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse number 9. It says this, 
For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God's looking for better people. He's not looking for methods. Let's be honest. God doesn't need that ox code. God didn't need that jawbone. God didn't need David's sling. He, he wanted Shamgar, and Shamgar had an ox code. He wanted Samson. Samson had that jawbone. He wanted David. David had a sling. He wasn't after those things. He was after those people. God's after you and God's after me, and he wants to use us to do great things. At the end of the day, no matter how obscure your story is, no matter how few people know that you lived on planet Earth and lived for however long you're going to live, at the end of it, what you want is a testimony like Shamgar ended up with. He did this. This is what God gave him to do. And he also accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish. On your tombstone or on mine, it just needs to say, He was a faithful steward. She was a faithful steward. That's what you want. At the end of the day, we just want to do what God gave us to do. Now, the platform he gives us to do that on, that's up to him. If you're going to be David out there leading a nation and the only king greater than Israel is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself, then then be David. But you and I might just be Shamgar. We might get one little blurb in this world's history And nobody's going to know our name, but God's going to record in his eternal record like he did for you and me. He delivered Israel also. He did it. God's keeping the record book. Spiritual victory, these these are the keys to them. The power of God, the strategy of God, and courage because we've surrendered to God. And whatever he gives us to do, let's do it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for putting these guys in here. I hope we're going to meet them one day. I assume we will. And Lord, what you choose to put in your word and tell us about, that's up to you. But you did put it in here for our learning. So help us to learn from Othniel and from Ehud and from Shamgar and every other person that we look at in the scripture. May we take away the lessons that you put their names in here for us to know. You've got reason for these stories. So help us, Lord, in our spiritual battle to rely on the Holy Spirit for his power and to seek the wisdom of your word. And like you told Joshua, help us to be strong and of good courage in this fight. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless.